everybody listening on Anchor, Breaker, Spotify, Radio Public, wherever you get your shows. This is On the Farm, a podcast dedicated to covering major and minor league baseball. I'm your host, Matt Kovitz. Joining me as always, Sam Shapiro. Sam, we are inching closer and closer to baseball finally returning. How are you doing? Well, Matt, I'm pretty good. I have to say that in a normal world, we would be hearing about the trucks making the drive down to Florida. And while it's a little weird and slightly disappointing that we don't have that, uh, as we're going to you know kick things off with, there's been some pretty solid movement on getting the season going. And so that's got me feeling optimistic. I'm feeling good in general and in no small part due to that. I made a Twitter list of all 30 MLB accounts that I occasionally check. I, sometimes I could just sift through it for an hour and just see what's going on. The Texas Rangers are the only team so far that have made a hashtag truck day post. So it is happening. They are going to be updating their socials, thankfully. Yeah, let's just hope that uh, these truck drivers are wearing masks and, and staying distant. I'm sure everything will be good as everyone starts to go down to Florida and Arizona. Headline story, the MLB agreeing to health and safety protocols with the MLBPA. Spring training is soon and April 1st opening day. Of course, the MLB proposed a 154 game season and that was swiftly rejected. That would have started in late April. Playoffs would have gone into mid-November. Doesn't matter. We're getting a regular season or as regular as a pandemic-laden season can be. Unfortunate pieces of news here for my perspective. The extra inning rule is returning, meaning that both sides agreed that starting in the top of the 10th, there will be a runner on second to begin each extra frame. I was not a fan of that. Clearly, the players were. And this is just a fan thing. Another controversial piece of news coming. Seven inning doubleheaders are also returning for the 2021 season. Again, universally lauded, except for these fans. So seems like they don't have the best interest of their audience at heart. Then again, baseball fans are notoriously resistant to change. The doubleheaders really gave you a different perspective. Definitely kept things going quicker. You had to remind yourself constantly, wow, they don't have much time to catch up. Or they could start a rally here and walk off in just the seventh inning. Hopefully doubleheaders are not as important to the season as they were last year. Games were getting canceled left and right. Teams like the Marlins and the Cardinals had to reschedule on a whim. Hopefully it's more weather related than anything else this year. I mean, here's the thing, Matt. We're starting in April. And so given the composition of Major League Baseball's rosters writ large, players aren't going to be eligible for the vaccine until May, June at the earliest. If last season is any indication... We're going to see some misbehavior. We're going to see some people just, you know, not giving a fuck and disregarding the protocols. And so just from a logistical standpoint, I get why these doubleheaders are happening because you need to make sure you're getting games in during the first like month or two of the season. I definitely think we're going to have to see cancellations and postponements. We may see uh, a team go on pause the way that the Marlins or the Cardinals or the Phillies had to uh, at the start of last year. And so... Uh, as long as that's a possibility, because, you know, I, I'm trying to think of like which farm animals it's most respectful to compare these players to. They're not going to behave the way they need to. And so this kind of has to happen. The good thing, good in quotes, is that a team pausing would not signal the derailment of a season, considering we are going on a cautiously optimistic path where even if there are some blips in April by the summer, I'm just knocking on wood here. ASMR. We should be getting better and this should be less of an issue. No, and, and I agree with you on that, but for at least the start of the season, there will be bumps in the road, I predict. And I think that you have to have something like this in play. 
And I also think that I, I could really go either way on the extra inning rule. You know, I have my my inner purist, but also like I, I do have to admit there are times when the shootout uh, is entertaining. You know, I think there there is a bit of an incentive to avoid having too many 15, 16 inning contests where it's just, you know, uh, an endless pitcher's duel. You're going to have guys who are coming back and working their first full season after last year had to get abbreviated. You know, starters didn't really have the chance to get stretched out. Uh, there's going to be a much higher risk of injury to players this season, I feel. And uh, with that in mind, keeping this to kind of shorten the games temporarily, I can understand it. Now, if you're asking me, do I want these to be permanent rule changes? Of course I don't, but uh, we're still not out of the woods yet. And I think until we are, I understand why these measures are remaining in place. My compromise would be have this all start in the top of the 13th. I think that would be an okay way to blend purity with a new generation of fans. We don't want to see just long slogging games because there are honestly, once you get to the 17th and there just hasn't been a base runner for 97 minutes straight, it gets a bit boring. I'm sorry. Yeah. Then you have to throw in your utility infielder on the mound. If you're a White Sox fan, watching, watching Larry Garcia pitch actually isn't that bad. He's the only one allowed. Exactly. Our sole uh, late inning relief King, but Shit, where is I going with that? I I, I found Willie <laughs> Garcia and uh, he just he he transfixed my mind, so I got distracted. Okay, yeah, I I got the train of thought back. So I, I think the issue with that there are a couple I see. Number one is that you can kind of make an arbitrary case on like should that be in the thirteenth? Do they have to bring it earlier in the eleventh or twelfth? Is you know is that too soon? And that seems like something that people could just like haggle on back and forth without any real underlying meaning. But also in terms of like trying to thread the needle. I feel like it's kind of tough to compromise on some of these things. If you're a real purist, you know, in the goose gossage style, you're not going to want to add in the new way of doing things in like a watered down way. You're not going to want to have it at all. Or if you're like, you know, let's say like a younger fan with like a fresher take on things and you know you want exciting and you aren't what it's tradition at all, you're going to be less susceptible to the pull of trying to meet both sides. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm sure that there's going to be a bit of I'm, I'm, I'm a bit more optimistic about whatever long term solution they come to, because I think one of the trends we've been noticing over the past year or two are players that are in this age of social media increasingly in tune with fans of the game and kind of voicing concerns that they may share with the fans against choices that Rob Manfred's making, let's say. And I think that players with their ear to the ground in this way can hopefully help to guide things in the right way, if that makes sense. I'm not being a league apologist either, but there are some rules that everyone was initially against and it ended up being okay and totally fine. You didn't even notice it. Like the mound visit limit, three batter minimum. I thought that was totally fine. Breezed incredibly quickly last year. I know the time of game is still going up and up, but these are things you aren't really noticing too much. I know the content of the game would be affected with these either in the seventh inning or the 10th inning. Still, it's going to take some getting used to. Eventually, people will start to quiet down about it, especially if they go on past 2021. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Matt. Another piece of news that came out, MLB is trying to deaden the baseball this year. Of course, we all know the ball has been lively since about the second half of 2015. Now, call me gullible. I really don't know if there was any trickery afoot with the league. It seems like there was an honest mistake, at least at first, in regards to the manufacturing process. I believe the dirt in Central America was not as easily captured as it was in years past, and that led to a lot of drag on the baseball just sort of disappearing. Maybe at this point, it's starting in 2017, 2019, when we were starting to shatter home run records, they realized, hey, everybody digs the long ball, not just chicks anymore. And it's continued to go in that direction. But right now, these balls are going to be deadened. And apparently, 
the plan is to add about five to 10 feet of fence, essentially. Going to take a lot more to get a real moonshot. And I have noticed in some years, guys hitting broken bat home runs, guys hitting and barely following through. They really have carried the last few years. Three true outcome baseball is certainly an issue. It's where the league is going right now. It's been trending negatively. And honestly, again, it gets a bit boring seeing nothing but a power show. I'd like to see a double or even a hard hit single mixed in. So not necessarily against this. Other teams are putting their baseballs in humidifiers now, the Boston Red Sox and the New York Mets among two of them, previously only for Colorado and Arizona, who had high offensive environments. Now it seems like that's going to be a league-wide mandate starting pretty soon. I do think, as you said, it is interesting that uh, the game's popularity tends to come and go with the uh, with the home run, even though we were uh, either not alive or not yet sentient. Um, the whole Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, that whole remoral in some ways ended up rebuilding the game's popularity in the in the wake of the strike. And I guess the one thing that someone who would call themselves an apologist for the steroid era would say is that it caught fans' eyes. You know, they liked seeing these impressive displays of power. And, you know, obviously I'd, I'd like to think that the past few years it was happening a little more cleanly. You know, that's something the game could, you know, kind of, you know, put to its credit, like, you know, look at these guys, you know, absolutely mashing um, and, and pointing to that as like a cool thing to tune into. I do. I do see your points about the three true outcomes though. I think that having more diverse forms of offense, um, you know, that can also uh, pique interest too. You know, I do love a little bit of small ball thrown in there. I think it's a, it's, it's a nice wrinkle. It's a nice kind of classic nod to the game's roots when you're able to manufacture runs uh, the, uh, the the old way. You know, I'm really not sure what kind of effect this will have because, you know, obviously if home run numbers go down, you know, that's, that is taking away that one potential bond of attention. Uh, and, and something else I'm thinking about is I mentioned a few shows ago how, it used to be when we were kids, really common to see guys make the 500 home run club. And now, honestly, I think like Mike Trout, arguably one of the greatest player, arguably the, the greatest player of his generation in terms of advanced metrics, one of the all time greats. Like, I think he's only projected to have like 580 something home runs at the end of his career, which is like pretty bananas. Like I, I would imagine that if he played in any different era, he'd be contending for, you know, somewhere in the 600s, maybe even the 700 club. I think it's a little unfortunate that you're going to have these incredibly talented players coming of age now who they're just never going to be able to amount to the to these older records in in the in the home run area. Something certainly worth monitoring. Again, these changes may not be precipitous or monumental. There is going to be an effect. So we'll take a look at what goes on. We'll see if there are any residual issues with the baseball. Another thing that matters is comfort with the pitchers. There's been a blister epidemic amongst guys who throw about two seamers and sinkers where they had it just baseball quality where they hadn't dealt with those issues before. So I'd like to think that these start to go away with those concerns in mind. I uh, did want to say a brief condolence message. Pedro Gomez, the longtime ESPN reporter, passed away at the age of 58 suddenly on Super Bowl Sunday. He was a staple of 2000 Sports Center. I remember seeing his face really just about every day, waking up before going to school, taking a look at the highlights, mostly stationed out West, was in charge of Barry Bonds' home run chase and has he surpassed legends, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, and then set the record himself. Gomez was there every step of the way. A very, very sad loss for the baseball community. And this was attracting writers from all publications, not just ESPN, 
writing about and talking about how great a man Gomez was. This is a very, very tough loss. It truly is, Matt. And I'm glad you brought up his work covering Barry Bonds and the home run chase because I actually didn't know this about Gomez. He was involved with a lot of noteworthy and historic moments in baseball history. As you said, you know, a West Coast guy, Bay Area. He spent a lot of time with the Bash brothers in Oakland and that, uh, you know, very noteworthy uh, set of athletics teams before you know covering the Giants. Uh, he was also on the scene for the Steve Bartman game, uh, game six of the uh, Marlins Cubs series in 2003, when uh, when Tampa Bay went to Cuba and you know was the first visit by a major league team to Cuban soil in decades. Pedro Gomez was uh, he was he, he he was assigned to cover and he was right there in the flesh. So really, someone present for uh, some some key key moments and uh, his his work and his coverage brought a lot to the game in that regard. So he, he truly will be missed and. Our, our most sincere condolences to his family and those who, who knew him and worked with him. Gomez known to be a great father. That's what everybody's been saying about him. One of his sons, actually, Rio, is a reliever in the Red Sox organization, thrived with the Arizona Wildcats in the Pac-12 and ended up getting drafted. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I knew of Rio Gomez. I remember seeing him when he got drafted, but I never made the connection uh, with him and his father. And even though he was uh, a, a late round pick, he's had the uh, Lights out numbers as a, as a lefty reliever in the minors um, kind of got a little bit of, uh, of closer action in, in class a in 2019. So obviously his father's, you know, tragic passing is the bigger story here, but for someone who was you know, drafted as an unheralded prospect, uh, Rio Gomez is doing all the right things he needs to, to continue moving up the ladder. So, you know, we hope he succeeds and, and can do his father proud. Rest in peace to Pedro Gomez. Now to move on to some transactional news, there was a relatively major trade that went down a couple days ago. Andrew Benintendi, left fielder for the Boston Red Sox, shipped off to the Kansas City Royals. And this was actually a three-team deal involving the pesky New York Mets, who have been everywhere this winter, for better or worse. So Benintendi going to the Royals, the Red Sox getting Franchi Cordero and Josh Winkowski, remember him, coming from the Mets and to Boston, while the Mets getting involved in taking a top 10 prospect in Khalil Lee from the Royals. Benintendi has not reclaimed his old glory, really came onto the scene strong in 2016, helped the Red Sox get to the playoffs 2016-2017, won the World Series, of course, 2018, had one of the more memorable game-ending catches in recent postseason history. He has really dropped off, only played in 14 games last year before a rib injury derailed his season. He really is a guy who defines the term change of scenery. I think he can do well in Kansas City trying to replace Alex Gordon. Sam, what do you think? Are you sad to see Benintendi go? Honestly, I am. You know, the past two seasons aside, he was unique in my fan experience because I was lucky enough as a kid that uh, the, the Red Sox were either solid in the postseason or they were kind of hanging, you know, around the fringes or maybe you know, third place in the division. And so Benintendi was our first top 10 draft pick in a very long time. And, you know, to have an elite amateur talent like him move through our system so quickly and carve out a role as, as a regular uh, on a World Series winner, as you mentioned, nonetheless. It was just really cool and a very you know likable guy. Fans enjoyed him a lot. Solid teammate. He did all the right things right. So you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the fresh start uh, works out for him, that he can you know figure out you know how to get back to his old form. I, we're, we're not in the same division as Kansas City. They haven't been you know, a team we've battled for, uh, you know, postseason spots uh, ever, really. So, you know, I'm not going to feel any um, any problems rooting for him. 
One thing I have to point out is that uh, my best friend's dad, when I was growing up, I had a bit of a mullet, which is embarrassing uh, to admit, but Yeehaw. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and my, my, my best friend's dad always thought that, you know, Andrew Benintendi, when he came up with the long hair was my doppelganger. And so even though the, I, I always thought the face was a little different, but you know, my, 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 my connection on that level is also never going away. So pretty impactful guy. And you know, I'll, I'll, I'll miss him for sure. What do you think about the rest of this trade? The Red Sox getting Cordero, who is an 80 grade power threat an 80 grade strength threat, but about a negative 40 grade durability. So he's just going to get injured, but he may mash along the way. And Winkowski, yeah, you sung the praises of him a few weeks ago when he was involved in that uh, in that deal from Stephen Matz to Toronto and just gets flipped, brought back up to Boston. Khalil Lee getting involved in this as well. Yeah, uh, in terms of Winkowski, we don't really have a top-of-the-line starting pitching prospect. I think like Brian Mata would probably be the, the closest we have. He's more of a mid-rotation guy. Tanner Houck was lights out in his you know first few starts this year, but you know some of the uh, you know scouts in the industry and publications, they're, they're thinking, he's more like a number three or number four as well. So uh, Winkowski, as he kind of moves up the ladder, I'm intrigued if he can maybe make that leap to be more that solid, you know, number two in a major league rotation. That would be really cool to see. In terms of Franchi Cordero, he does have some upside, but I think in terms of our outfield mix, we've got Jaron Duran in AAA this year, who I'm very much looking forward to see make his debut. I think with Cordero, maybe he's someone we look at once JD Martinez's contract expires. You know, I, I don't think he's getting you know re-signed for a third time. You know, maybe if Cordero's power holds up, he's someone who can be plugged into the DH role for a few years. And one other thing that's interesting is Khalil Lee arguably one of, if not the top position players in the Royals system. And so, you know, there, there were some misses with the Mets and the free agent market. You know, they didn't get Bauer. They, they bit the bullet on James McCann and, you know, Real Muto was kind of the top catcher on the market. They missed out on him. DJ LeMahieu, George Springer, that was an, an, another big swing to miss for them. So I think uh, Khalil Lee uh, is a nice consolation prize. He's someone who I think will be able to debut this year. Obviously they've still got um, Brandon Nimmo getting a share of at bats. I think it's it's very feasible that uh, Khalil Lee can maybe outplay an, an Albert Almora, start earning some ABs in the platoon role and, and kind of see what goes from there. These Royals are building a fascinating team. They have not been afraid to sign and acquire big league talent this winter. In addition to Benintendi, Mike Miner, Carlos Santana, just a couple guys. Of course, they have the ever-interesting Whit Merrifield. I'm liking what's going on over there. This move works in tandem with the Sox signing Marwin Gonzalez on a one-year $3 million deal. He is reunited with Alex Cora, his former bench coach. Gonzalez, of course, had his best year in 2017. Was he a part of Operation Codebreaker? Who knows? He didn't really work out in Minnesota, hoping that he could stick around in Boston and do well. My question, though, is he a bit expendable with Enrique Hernandez also on the team? Because there are going to be guys who are plugged and played into various different positions. There are two of them on the team. I mean, one thing I think this definitely does is it takes a lot of the pressure off of Christian Arroyo, who had uh, a couple of flashes he showed in his brief time last year, but very unproven, uh, hasn't had the greatest track record over the long term. And so I think the value of a Marwin Gonzalez, who's had quite a few full major league seasons under his belt, can do the super utility role and in better days has uh, been a solid regular. I think that one year, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but he, he hit like over 20 home runs in a season at least once, right? Yeah. At some point he was filling in splitting time with Yuli Gurriel at first base and Gonzalez is not a first base profile and he was having the power to match it. Yeah. And so I think that uh, this is, it's great to see the depth being supplemented in a way that we haven't had uh, in the past couple of seasons. There's, but Yairo Munoz had a few really good games at the end of last year, got DFA in the off season. And earlier on, you know, there were thoughts that, uh, 
he would have to make the team again as a non-roster invitee as, as a utility player. And so I think that it's just a solid upgrade in terms of what talent was there before. So I don't think this really supplants anyone. Obviously, you still have Michael Chavis trying to reclaim some of that Camus prospect status, even though he's scuffled for a few years. You know, and, and, and I'll say, even if Jeter Downs comes up and he steals the second base job away, I still think that having Enrique Hernandez and Marwin uh, on that roster, that's still, that's still great versatility that helps a lot. Moving out west, the Los Angeles Dodgers signing with the marquee free agent of Trevor Bauer, now shedding some bullpen arms. Adam Kolarik, the Juan Soto killer, and Cody Thomas going to the Oakland Athletics for Sheldon Noisy and Gus Varland. This is a deal where I understand that the A's are just going to regret it. Noisy is going to become the next Max Muncie. It's just written in the stars. That being said, Kolarik is a pretty nice return. If he could dominate like he did in uh, 2019, 2020, the A's are getting a very solid reliever. That being said, if the Dodgers want one of your guys, something is wrong and you need to reassess immediately. Another deal the team made, Dylan Floro, the spin rate king. This is another guy I'm talking about. Went from the Rays to the Dodgers, learned how to use his effective off-speed pitches and take them to his advantage. He was one of the better guys in the short relief role, not even in a setup position, not even a middle relief position, barely came in and was quite effective going to the Miami Marlins. I'm maybe a little uh, less doomerish on, on, on Sheldon Noisy. That very well could happen. I don't think it's written in the stars quite yet. Matt, the interesting thing about Kalarik is I was checking his stats and he had more saves last year than anyone else on the A's 40-man roster currently. So to my knowledge, he's never been used in a closer role. He's had that title of lefty specialist for, for quite some time. I wonder if Oakland tries to trot him out in the ninth inning, that would be fascinating to me uh, to see how he does in that, uh, in that situation. Prospects exchange in this deal, Cody Thomas, uh, outfielder, uh, former Oklahoma Sooner, hit for some okay power in double A in 2019, but uh, not great for average. And the return going along with Sheldon Noisy is Gus Varland, who sounds more like a plumber than a baseball player, but had uh, had some decent starts at advanced class A for, uh, for, for, for Oakland. Los Angeles has done very well in terms of you know, developing starting pitchers, uh, especially uh, starting pitchers originally drafted by other organizations. We look at uh, uh, our guy, Josiah Gray, uh, originally a Reds draftee, who is now arguably the Dodgers' top starting pitching prospect, uh, all, all primed to make his debut this year. So that could be a nice diamond in the rough there. Now a couple of signings, just a profile, pretty low level, but still worth mentioning. D. Strange Gordon signing a minor league deal with the Cincinnati Reds. This wouldn't be notable at all if not for the fact that they need serious middle infield help. I think he could easily break the roster, play all around second, center field if he has to. Are you comfortable rolling with Kyle Farmer at shortstop right now? I don't know about that. I think aesthetically, I never will be because my uh, my first impression of Kyle Farmer was this is a catcher. Of course, he's built himself uh, into a utility player and he did get tried out at shortstop a few times. But do I want to be starting him for, you know, 140, 150 games a season? I, I, I don't think I do, Matt. I really don't think I do. This is a Willie Adamas move incoming because they Rays are going to want Wander Franco up at some point. This is a very possible destination that I've been seeing speculated online. Who says no first? Willie Adamas for Hunter Green. I think the Rays say no first because Green at this point is possibly a bit broken, but it's still an, it's, it's a deal that could come to fruition because if there's any team that could extract that talent, it's the Rays. Right. And obviously we've, we've talked a lot about Green's injury struggles, but he was a, an elite talent 
coming out of high school, uh, leading up, leading up to his draft. And I think the the thing with Adamas is, um, the Rays really are in a bit of a pickle because every team in the league knows they have to get rid of him. They have to make room for Wander Franco. And so, you know, they're coming at this from a a bit of a position of weakness. I I just thought of that randomly during the day. Um, and it's like, it's it's one of those things where I know, I, I know that, 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 proposal would, you know, raise a lot of eyebrows just because of, you know, how big each name is, but just a little, a little something, something to think about. We need a little March movement for sure. Yadier Molina back with the St. Louis Cardinals would not have expected anything else. One last time, one last go round with Adam Wainwright. They've been a battery since 2005. They're the longest running battery in the league. I'm happy about this. That's really all I have to say. Yeah, I mean, you know, good for him going out on his own terms. I'm sure if Yvonne Herrera gets called up at some point, uh, that that mentorship will continue in the Major League Clubhouse. That might be a nice little perk for the Cardinals uh, player development staff to look forward to. I am unhappy about this next move. That's all I could say. Jonathan VR to the New York Mets. I predict an absolute disaster. This is a guy who played himself out of a role in Miami. There were a couple games this summer. Runners in scoring position. The Marlins threatening against the Mets. 3-0 count. VR swings, pops it up, swings and misses, pops out, makes base running gas. So many mistakes that Gary Cohen, the Mets announcer, was saying, oh my God, what is this guy doing? Where he was just so frustrated by the bad play. VR was shipped from Miami to Toronto, ended up leaving the stadium when he was benched in the middle of a September game. Some extreme character concerns here. I'm not sure how he exactly plugs in to this lineup with, of course, Luis Guillorme going to be there. So I'm not too sure how long this is going to last. I'm giving it two and a half months. I mean, this is interesting because I think uh, Lindor and Jeff McNeil is a really good double play combo. You, of course, have to consider Jeff McNeil uh, is a little on the brittle side, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and also just in, in terms of looking at how the Mets uh, could construct their bench. If you want a, a second backup infielder next to Guillaume, you know, the other options are really not that inspiring. Jose Peraza, Brandon Drury, Wilfredo Tovar, you know, coming back for another go round. possibly. God. So it's one of those things where VR is on the one hand, not a vital piece, but you know, if he melts down again, there is a pretty significant uh, drop off in terms of who you'd next bring up. I'm trying to think of, you know, who's in like double a, who maybe would like rock it up a bit. I mean, I, I, I know Luis Carpio has been on some top 10 lists in the past. Carlos Cortez was a third round uh, draft pick. It's interesting. I think that my, my, my default assumption is that a player will not completely self-destruct personality wise. I'm going to hope that's the case for the sake of Mets fans, but things could get funky in Queens. I can't wait to see the spicy takes that come out. Moving out West, Jake McGee going to the San Francisco Giants on a two-year, $7 million pact. I really like what San Francisco is doing here. Thought McGee was cooked in Colorado. Really looked like a shell of his former self from his Tampa Bay Rays days. Went to the Dodgers, where else? And excelled and now gets a two-year guaranteed contract. He's not flashy by any means, much like a lot of these Giants moves but can get the job done. They are increasingly looking threatening for a wild card position. Yeah. And I think that um, shoring up the back end of their bullpen was something they had to do. Reyes Maranta, great 2019 season, but uh, missed last year due to injury. And so not really a, a proving closer on that roster. Tyler Rogers struggled a lot last year. Matt Whistler, not including Whistler's mother, you know, another free agent signing, but he's more of a, a, a setup short relief guy. Um, and while, while McGee is getting up in years, so he's turning 35 this year, I believe uh, he does kind of have some, some nice closer experience and, and given the numbers he put up in Los Angeles, I think that they might want to try putting him out there in those in those safe situations just to see what happens. How about this for a reunion that you didn't see coming? Chicago Cubs 
inking Jake Arrieta to a one-year pact worth about $7 million. He was asking for a bit more, could not get multiple years, didn't think he was deserving of them, honestly. Arietta, not like his past self in the mid-2010s where he was untouchable. Great cutter, fantastic strikeout stuff. Didn't do well in the Phillies. I guess he's expecting that if anyone can fix him, it's going to be the Chicago Cubs. This is a team that certainly needs the depth and veteran move. I guess you can't knock it. Good for him for securing that much money. Realistic thought was that he was going to get a minor league pack. Yeah, I have to imagine that getting to play for Rossi as well was a big draw for him, given uh, I, I, I just imagine how how, de- how deep that relationship goes. And I think for the Cubs, this still makes sense because at this point, they're going to be trotting out Trevor Williams for a rotation spot, it looked like. And if you ask me which of these two I trust more, you know, I, I would probably want to take the field over both of them. But uh, Arietta's numbers you know, don't even compare to how putrid our guy Trevor's were. So this makes the Cubs better. This is a place where Arietta has seen success in the past where, you know, he has a lot of confidence pitching in a home Jersey, you know, in front of that Ivy. So I, I think, I think this could work out. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I wonder what it's like for a guy like Chris Bryant, Anthony Rizzo, now Jake Arietta to play for David Ross as a manager. Is it like you're really good friends with the student teacher and then the student teacher gets a full-time position and then has to become a hard ass? You know, it could, but I think knowing what we know about Rossi's personality, that's not the kind of tack he takes. Yeah. The thing that's important to remember is he had an elder statesman role when he was teammates with these guys. You know, they, they referred to him as, as Grandpa Rossi. So there was already... Well, now it's he, Coach Ross to you. Coach or Coach, coach Grandpa Ross. <laughs> I think that, yeah, like even though they were friends and buddies and whatnot, he still had you know, a a leadership role and there was still upward looking respect. And so I think that that kind of makes the transition easier. And he's, he's just like, he's a very laid back guy, great sense of humor. And so I don't think he could be a a hard ass if he tried. I don't necessarily think he needs to. That's not the only, that's not the only way to, um, to, to skip a winning baseball team. Definitely not. And that's on the way out for sure. You don't need that abrasive personality as much anymore. It doesn't relate to a modern clubhouse. It honestly doesn't. San Diego Padres, As you said, the filthy rich get filthier and richer, signing Mark Melanson to a one-year contract. This is the move I was expecting where they were going to shore up that bullpen. One of the few remaining steps left into their plunge into superstardom. Did not think it would be Melanson. He had a great year with Atlanta after being traded from San Francisco. Giants deal, his $60 million didn't necessarily work out, but that was just an overpay. I think he's had a very solid career as he enters his mid to late 30s could be a stabilizing presence in a rather young bullpen. More of a trustworthy figure than Emilio Pagan. No offense to Emilio. Of course. And I think uh, Melanson and Pomerantz, both highly touted prospects as they initially came up. Each of them had their scuffles. I saw Melanson's up close that one season he wore a Boston uniform, but both of them really nice jobs of reinventing themselves as, as late in relievers towards the twilights of their career. Uh, Pomerantz, Obviously, uh, they feel more comfortable with him as 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 their eighth inning guy than closing. But I, I still think that that's a really nice way to finish out games. And I take no pleasure in watching our our new San Diego overlords conquer even more of the galaxy. But I just I just got to tip my cap at this point. Last two tidbits of news to get to the Tampa Bay Rays signing two starters definitely in the need for them. Rich Hill and Colin McHugh, each two one year contracts. You know what you're getting with Rich Hill. He's gonna excel. He's going to be fantastic, but he's going to get hurt. And as he enters his 40s, it's going to keep happening. You have to account for it and hope the depth is enough for your team. Colin McHugh, rough 2019, didn't get to pitch last year, working his way back from elbow troubles. But bounce back candidate, sure. I don't know how much of a role he's going to have. 
whether he's a starter or a long reliever. It's Tampa Bay. They are now paying multiple guys, these two and Mike Zunino for the same price as Charlie Morton's one-year contract with the Atlanta Braves. So they're trying to get value out of three guys for one. Yeah, I will say adding another lefty to this rotation mix alongside Josh Fleming is a nice move. Uh, It boggles my mind to see Rich Hill around and thriving still. He's 40 years old. He was a Uh, Long Island duck. He was one of the more famous ones. No shit. I did not yeah, know that. Quite, that quite was to him. Right before he went to Boston, that's where he came from. He told a story about the grueling life that it was in the independent Atlantic League. He had to pee in a bucket in the bullpen. For some reason, I think they have bathrooms there. He may have just done that on his own. I mean, better that than uh, Jeff Leifer going to the bathroom uh, during a game and getting locked in. There, I suppose that's a bit better. I, I've been to that ballpark a few times. There are certainly bathrooms there. To take this even further back, he debuted in 2005, which just seems like a million years ago. He debuted when the Red Sox were defending champions for the first time in 86 years, which, and obviously like uh, several lifetimes of, of baseball have gone on in between then several shifts in power dynamic and rises and falls of different franchise. And here's Rich Hill just chugging along, pitching for his like seventh or eighth team. Honestly, what 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 a really really special career he's had, and he's not going to be a Hall of Famer. But the his uh, his career arc, coming up as a starter, flaming out as you mentioned, going to Long Island, reinventing himself as a nice lefty reliever, and then suddenly going back to starting for the last you know five six years of his career and uh, being lights out while he's healthy. You know that that's that's really unique, and I don't think that we see too many guys do what he did in the order he did. So. Kudos to him. Uh, I hope he struggles mightily if he ever pinches, pinches against the Red Sox this season, but respect to him. That is a fair wish. And now we've been talking about this for the last few shows. Very excited for a college baseball preview. This is all you need to know about the upcoming 2021 season. Now, Sam, the college baseball season is here. Of course, all of these players must be excited. They had their season suspended due to the pandemic last year after only a handful of games. I'm sure you must be excited as well because you've described this as your bread and butter and you're getting the food back. Yeah, I starved for a while. It's nice to have some nourishment again. Um, but yeah, I, I think like especially from the standpoint of, of the players, you know, these kids are, you know, college baseball, it's a, it's a game of, I hate to keep the food metaphor going, but of hungry guys and people with something to prove. This is how people, you know, make a name for themselves and try and set themselves up for a pro career. Obviously, you know, you have like the college national team, you have this, the, the summer leagues, the Cape Cod League, but uh, if you're able to perform during the regular season, that's absolutely huge in terms of setting yourself up for a good future. And with a lot of teams, including a couple that we'll we'll discuss uh, by name today, quite a few teams had outstanding starts uh, to last season and looked like they were on their way to uh, some really special results um, and and deep runs in the postseason and and possibly make it to Omaha. And to have that taken away uh, and, and have that momentum quashed, it's, it's an undeniably shitty feeling, I have to imagine. And so to, to give these kids a chance to get that back, obviously, everyone who played in a spring NCAA sanctioned sport last year automatically got an extra year of eligibility. So you're going to see a lot of redshirt freshmen and redshirt juniors and redshirt sophomores who are particularly going to be uh, even more eligible for the draft than they usually are because, you know, they're the requisite three years removed from high school or what have you. So I think this is going to be, this is going to be a really exciting college baseball season. You've got, as, as I'll mention with some of these, you know, top five teams will go into more depth on a lot of players who 
would have been picked in say like the sixth through 10th rounds or like the early, you know, 11th, 12th, 13th rounds. But without those options available to teams, these kids had to go back for another year of school that none of them were planning on when they first uh, went to college. Like they probably thought they'd be, you know, three and done. And so you're having teams that are deeper than they've been before with more elite level talent, more uh, experience, you know, there's one team in the top five we're going to talk about. They have a sixth year senior as their closer. So the level of competition is just going to be absolutely top notch this year. And I can't wait for it to get started, Matt. And I suppose that's a positive side effect if those could exist of the cancellation that we have all these players back. The competition level is going to be raised. Now, without further ado, you've teased this ranking list that Baseball America dropped a few days ago. If you could, Take us in depth through the BA top 25. Sure. So I think um, out of consideration to both our listeners and my own uh, free time, I've kind of got some some solid notes on the top five teams because, you know, these are obviously, uh, you know, some of the uh, premier programs in the game right now and the ones that Baseball America and, you know, I think that I do as well. Like, I think that these are going to be the teams that are most likely to, to make some noise late in the postseason. I'll give the other teams in the top 10 just because there are a lot of, you know, big names there that even more casual observers may recognize and maybe a couple other uh, you know, teams further down in the top 25 that could have some, some potential interest. And once we're done with that, though, Matt, uh, I hope that uh, people are getting excited because one of the things that we uh, tried to do back uh, when we were on campus and streaming on WNYU was to look at some of the programs in the tri-state area. And fortunately, with UConn and St. John's and Seton Hall and eh, what the hell, even Rutgers, you know, there's still some high major baseball being played in our relative backyards. And so we're going to make sure, uh, even though none of those programs are in the top 25 to start the year in the BA rankings, we're going to make sure that there's some good content to get our local listeners excited. Very much looking forward to that as well. Before you go on, historically in college baseball, is it the same handful of teams dominating like it would be in college football or basketball? Or are there an increase of volatility that could lead to a fun tournament once we hit that time in June. Yeah, I think that all bets are off when you get to the College World Series. Obviously, it's a game of momentum. You know, you have even for teams that aren't like the Huguenots, that aren't the UCLA's or the Florida's, you still have a high caliber of player. You know, if it's all up and down, say like the SEC or the Pac-12 or whoever's sending guys to the College World Series. For the most part, though, it's concentrated in areas where you're getting the best amateur talent. So you're seeing your teams in Florida, like, you know, UF and Miami, California schools, UCLA, USC, you know, Cal State Fullerton, you know, just basically the most fertile recruiting grounds are are sending the top talent that doesn't get signed pro out of high school to these local colleges for the most part. And you know, that's also true in terms of your know, schools in Texas, UT, Texas Tech, AM, TCU, even to a lesser extent, who's been cranking out a lot of really interesting professional prospects. So I think a, a lot of it is really uh, contingent on geography. Vanderbilt, of course, being kind of the exception, they're just recruiting all over the damn country. And honestly, they're the cream of the crop in terms of this entire sport. You do have teams kind of maybe that will be on program upswings. I think that. Uh, one of the teams that I'll, I'll briefly mention later is University of Michigan, who um, has you know been on a bit of an uptick recently. They actually made the College World Series final in 2019, losing to Vanderbilt, but putting up a great fight. So you will sometimes have teams like that who have you know kind of been insurgents against the uh, established powers, but for the most, it seems from the same region doing the damage. And now without further ado, let's have you profile the team in the pole position in these rankings right now. All right. So it starts on the Baseball America list with none other than the Florida Gators. They started last year 16 and one. They looked like they were going to roll. 
Matt, they still look like they're going to roll. Our listeners will recognize Judd Fabian, whom we talked about in our first draft preview episode. A likely top 10 pick will be starting in center field for them. Really their best position player by far, but they've got a, they've got some nice supporting players. You know, his outfield mate, Jacob Young. Josh Rivera won their starting shortstop job as a freshman, which is incredibly hard to do, especially in a tough conference like the SEC. Corey Acton across the second base bag, you know, man in the Keystone corner. And uh, Nathan Hickey, who was uh, a very talented high school prospect out of the Jacksonville area uh, has now been starting uh, behind the plate for them. I mentioned Matt, this, uh, this shortened draft. I think the two guys that got most screwed by it were uh, Florida's top two starters, Tommy Mason, and Jack Leftwich, who were all up and down the baseball America, top 100, top 200 rankings for last year. They didn't end up getting picked. So they're back. They're still at the helm of this rotation. They've got uh, Hunter Barco, who's a, a lefty, one of the top uh, 2019 high school recruits as the Sunday starter, or like the number three starter. Um, which just goes to show their depth. In terms of the bullpen, Christian Scott and Ben Specht were lights out in the limited action they saw last year. Both of them projected to go very high uh, in the draft as well by Baseball America. This team is stacked and anyone who's playing them must be very, very afraid. That sounds typical for Florida sports. They tend to do well whether it's football, basketball, or baseball, historically in the last few seasons. They do. And believe it or not, uh, they've only won a single College World Series back in 2017, but they're one of those teams that's always a, a perennial contender. They've gotten several number one overall seeds going to the tournament. I remember, I think it might have been the previous year to that, UConn ended up being in their regional and had a very intense matchup against A.J. Puck, who was a very intimidating presence on the mound for the Gators. Coming in right behind a perennial powerhouse on the West Coast, the UCLA Bruins, Trevor Bauer, Garrett Cole. This isn't going to work, but the, ne- the next name I thought of was Pat Valaika for no good reason. Well, um, he counts. He as an, he's an alum, so congratulations, Pat. He is, but I think bot- bottom line, this is a program that is known to produce uh, Major League Baseball All-Stars and has been doing so for many years. Like Florida, they have a top 10 guy, Matt McLean, as their most dangerous weapon. Uh, some other guys to watch, uh, catcher Noah Cardenas and first baseman JT Schwartz. Both guys, I think, are likely to be picked in the top five rounds. Another guy to watch, however, Michael Curiali, another alum of uh, Junipero Serra, the same uh, high school that has uh, Royce Lewis, a lot of those other guys. Matt, feel free to... Pat Valeka. <laughs> <laughs> Always Pat Valeka. But going from one of the top high school programs in the country to one of the top college programs in the country, Curiali is going to start in center field this year, but he's the heir apparent at shortstop once Matt McClain goes in the first round this coming year. And he may even be a better player than McLean when all is said and done. So a lot of talent up the middle in Westwood. The rotation is left completely intact from last year. Zach Petway and Nick Mastrini, both highly tended draft prospects. Jesse Bergen, redshirt sophomore, his third year of experience, going to do a nice job rounding out the weekend staff. Um, their closer last year, Holden Powell, he is now a Washington National, but they are still returning in deep bullpen. Uh, their presumptive closer is Kyle Mora, no relation to the football Moras. Uh, he's a senior who had 15 strikeouts in nine innings last year. So very impressive stuff in a small sample size. A couple of freshmen to watch. Redshirt freshman pitcher Jared Karos. Matt, does that sound familiar? Would that be Eric Karos's son? It would be. Wow. Second generation Bruins. So uh, he'll be in the mix for sure. And also true freshman. I think their top incoming high school recruit, uh, Max Radjic from uh, Orange Lutheran High. Longtime fans will recognize that as the alma mater of Cole Wynn of the Rangers organization. So the thing with the UCLA name and the pedigree is that you can get the top talent at the top prep schools in, in California. And even if you're just mining from that small geographic area, there's just so much to work with there that you end up being absolutely and being able to 
build these teams that are perennially contending to win the College World Series. Now, this next team at number three really didn't do much in our childhoods in terms of climbing up the rankings. Of course, they have Pat Mahomes as an alum. That counts for something. But the Texas Tech Red Raiders now getting good at baseball as well. Yeah, I mean, first you had their basketball team making that run to the championship game. And now head coach Tim Tadlock has got this team ranked number three in the postseason atop the Big 12, you know, ahead of Texas and Oklahoma and a lot of these uh, longtime baseball powers. So for fans of the game who, who are aware of Josh Young, top Rangers prospect, there's another one. Jace Young, the young or brother, ah, ha 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 is starting at second base. Uh, he brings excellent power uh, for the position, as does designated hitter and, and part-time catcher Nate Rombach. They're really milking this uh, this uh, major league pedigree thing in their recruiting because Dylan Noisy, Sheldon's brother, he's their center fielder. He hit 355 in the abbreviated season last year. So for people who don't follow the college game as as closely, that's not as gaudy of a number. It's it's more common to have like a, a real elite player hit above 400 over the course of a college season. But regardless, Dylan Noisy primed to be a very loud contributor to the Red Raiders. They lost quite a few pitchers to the draft last year in uh Clayton Beater and uh, Bryce Bonin. I think John McMillan went as well. But Texas Tech always seems to reload and just crank guys out there. Mason Montgomery and Micah Dallas um, are looking like the next duo that's 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 tapped to break out. But neither of them may even be the best uh, pitcher on staff. They've got Brandon Birdsell, a JUCO transfer. Scouts are saying he he would rank above them and is a candidate to, to go even higher than, than either of those two. So with Texas Tech, they've made three out of the last four College World Series. Their lineup is where it needs to be. They've got... Uh, a great offensive team, but the only question mark is just seeing how well these pitchers do in bigger roles than they're used to and replacing their former teammates who have gone pro back to the sec for this next team, another 16 and one record last year. Yes. So we now have the old miss rebels who have a lot of interesting returning pieces for them. I think it starts with Tim Elko redshirt junior at third base, Tyler Keenan drafted by the Mariners last year, but Elko, uh, sliding right over to replace him without a step. I'm predicting that he and the uh, redshirt freshman catcher Hayden Dunhurst, uh, who hit five home runs in limited time last year, are going to be their three, four punch in the lineup. Uh, that'll be uh, tough, very tough for even SEC pitching staffs to be able to handle. But with Ole Miss, their strength really lies with their pitching. They've got Gunnar uh, Hogland, who was a first round supplemental pick of the Pirates back in 2018, as well as uh, Doug Nikazi. They're both the Friday, Saturday starters, certainly picked in the first few rounds. One of the best combos in the nation there. Uh, Derek Diamond was a very strong freshman as the Sunday starter. All three of them are back the full week in rotation. Uh, they've also got Braden Forsyth uh, with five saves under his belt from last year, a former top recruit. Uh, looks like he'll have the inside track on either the closers role or at the very least, uh, a high leverage setup role. Uh, the thing with Ole Miss is they're as, as talented a team as any. But, you know, the question is, you know, they're SEC West, Florida's SEC East. They both stand a solid chance to make the College World Series, but only one can win it all. So and closing out our top five, uh, the Virginia Cavaliers, they have not played in the postseason, much less the College World Series since 2017. They are primed to burst back onto the scene in a big way this year. Now, Matt, this is probably predictable for you, but I think the thing that excites me the most about Virginia is they're the highest ranked program in this list that consistently recruits from the Northeastern United. United States. And just in looking at their projected lineup, they've got uh, they got guys like Chris Newell, who in the outfield uh, looked like a potential freshman of the year candidate in the ACC last year. 1.274 OPS in his first 59 at-bats. Okay, um, A superstar in the making from uh, Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Max Codier at second base, uh, an alumnus of the Canterbury School here in Connecticut. Zach Geloff, arguably their, their top draft prospect for this year, a third baseman who can also play shortstop out of Cape Henlopen, Delaware. 
down by the beach. That must have been a nice place to grow up. And uh, Mike Vazel, one of their starters, a uh, native of Wellesley, Massachusetts, alum of the storied Boston College High School. But they've got talent from other parts of the country, too. Obviously, Virginia has some solid high school baseball uh, talent itself. Nick Kent is the latest in a long line of solid Cavalier shortstops. Guys like uh, Ernie Clement and Daniel Pinheiro have starred there recently. They're currently you know, in AAA with the Indians and the Tigers, potentially knocking on the major league door. They've got uh, Andrew Abbott and Griff McGarry as junior starting pitchers who would have certainly been picked in a more normal size draft last year. Uh, Abbott, a lefty who had an excellent uh, start to his Virginia career in the bullpen. I think they're thinking of moving him to the rotation. Um, and even outside of their, you know, projected starting lineup or, you know, weekend rotation, there's some elite talent uh, on this on this UVA team. Nate Savino, a lefty who uh, reclassified, I think, to the 2019 draft. He took his name out of the draft so we could, you know, enroll at UVA and get some college experience a year early. Um, I think they'd probably be, uh, I mean, it's not an oof because he, he oof got just for timing oof for timing, but I would imagine that, you know, he's a home state kid who's already got an inside track on a big role with this team. It looks to me that with Abbott McGarry and Basil, uh, he'd probably just slide into their like Tuesday starter role. He must be one of the nastiest weekday starters in the country, just given his his pedigree. And they had an, an another guy who pulled something very similar. Their backup catcher, Kyle Teal, was a top 100 recruit this year, pulled his name out of the draft. And he was very excited to go to Charlottesville, get his college career started. Of course, another Northeasterner, Upper Saddle River, New Jersey, keeping that pipeline alive. So the thing with Virginia, um, the ACC is an incredibly tough league. You've got schools like UNC and Wake Forest and Duke has been not really known as, as a traditional baseball power, but they're sending guys to the draft in quantities that it has, has not been the case for, for quite some time. They had Bryce Jarvis, you know, as a first rounder this past year going to the Diamondbacks. So uh, Virginia will have its work cut out for, uh, for itself in conference, but a lot of really solid talents for sure. And now if you could take us through other interesting names in the top 25. You can round off that top 10. I'm sure there are some other schools that may not be getting as much recognition at the tippy top, but are going to make an impact and a strong impression early on in the year. Sure. So I think rounding out the top 10, I'll just list some names off because they're big names. And I think, uh, again, even more casual listeners recognize some of them. Vanderbilt, as I've been saying, the top program in the country uh, is listed at number six. Tim Corbin is an absolute wizard in terms of what he's done there. Uh, For those who don't know, Vanderbilt's, they basically treated their their baseball program. uh, They ran it like it was an arm of of a rec department. And, you know, to to have him build it up from scratch to be a a multi-time College World Series winner, cranking out an obscene number of professionals, not just any professionals, elite professionals, you know, guys in the vein of of Walker Bueller and Sonny Gray, you know, even though they're ranked only six to start the season out, uh, you can't sleep on them. Louisville at number seven overall. This is a team that maybe has not seen as much in terms of deep, deep runs in the College World Series, but they've been really pulling their weight in terms of recruiting well, developing pro prospects. They were the only school this past year to have multiple players picked in the first round. Uh, Reed Detmers to the Angels and Bobby Miller to the Dodgers. And this is something that uh, they could very possibly uh, do again this year with uh, two guys we mentioned on, uh, on on our draft preview, Alex Benellis at third base and Henry Davis catching. Mississippi State at eighth overall. That's, this is a program that's seen a bit of uh, turnover over the past you know six, seven years. It looked like they had a great coaching hire in Andy Canizero, the former Yankee. That didn't go as planned because of uh, some indiscretions in his personal life, but they've raided the ship. And Mississippi State is one of those teams that always, even if they're not getting the hype of a Florida, let's say, 
they rake in high-level guys both from Mississippi and the surrounding states. They do a very good job of working in guys from uh, you know high school players from Louisiana and Alabama as well. And so they're always a threat. Florida State. Uh, having to replace a legend uh, in Mike Martin, their former coach. He retired, I think, after 2019. Their new head coach is none other than his son, Mike Martin Jr. We'll see. Uh, we'll see if, uh, if if Mike number two is able to pick up where the old man left off. Uh, they're at number nine, and uh, it's unfortunate that I was when I was talking about Virginia's conference schedule, I didn't mention Louisville or Florida State, but they'll definitely be giving the Cavaliers some really solid competition and rounding things out. LSU, uh, it's just it's tough to count them out in any major sport. Paul Manieri, one of the one of the great coaches of the game. Uh, normally, when someone uh, has a coaching job at Notre Dame, that's kind of like the peak; they're set there for life. No. If you're LSU, you hire your baseball coach from Notre Dame. That's where Paul Maynard came from. Uh, he's been in Baton Rouge for quite some time. And they've got a really good program going there. Just a couple other names further down the top 25 I want to mention. Michigan, a non-traditional power. As I mentioned, uh, the most recent runner-up. They're, they're clocking in at number 20. They lost a lot of talent in the draft in terms of uh, outfielders. Jesse Franklin and Jordan Nuogu. Jeff Criswell was the ace of that staff. But uh, Eric Bakich really did a great job getting the most out of his guys and taking them on that run. So uh, they're getting some much-deserved respect in this preseason poll. And uh, UC Santa Barbara, the Gauchos, uh, they're the highest-ranking mid-major in the traditional sense. They're 21st in the Baseball America ranking. But for our listeners, you know, smaller schools from California and Florida... They're essentially high majors for baseball purposes just because they are still drawing from such an elite talent pool, which is why you have teams like UC Santa Barbara or Cal State Florida and, you know, sending guys to be drafted in the first round. Or like Florida Gulf Coast, let's say. Uh, they're having Chris Sales of the world being you know drafted in the, in the early first round. So even though you see UC Santa Barbara and you think, oh, they're in the, in the Big West, you know, what, what the fuck kind of conference is that? In baseball, that is not a joke. Matt, I've been looking forward to this moment all winter. Our listeners have no idea how jazzed up I am about this. Um, Just as as a bit of a brief background. So uh, like Matt said, the Northeast is not exactly a place where college baseball is king, but the job Jim Penders has done building up the Yukon Huskies program into such a consistent contender and producer of professional talent is nothing short of miraculous. In terms of having to deal with running a baseball program uh, in a place with one of the, you know, one of the colder winters in the country. Um, and also with not a lot of institutional support up until recently, they opened a beautiful new field, Elliott Ballpark, um, in time for last year. Unfortunately, the season got cut short. But up until uh, 2020, they were playing at a stadium that was, in my opinion, less nice than the um, than the D3 field at Eastern Connecticut State. Um, and the fact that UConn was still able to be a program that uh, consistently went to the NCAA tournament that was uh, last decade, just a few outs away from, from, from Omaha and having guys like World Series MVP George Springer, Gold Glover Nick Ahmed, Matt Barnes, not, not just guys who got cups of coffee in the major leagues, but you know, bona fide people who made that their career. The fact that UConn's been able to carve out that status as a program is it's absolutely unprecedented. And so this is just it's such a fun program for me to follow in general, but especially with how they're looking this year. Last year was arguably their deepest team in in many years and you know having to stop the season due to COVID really put the brakes on what could have been a truly special run. But fortunately, uh, there's plenty going on this year. I was going to say the silver lining is that most of these players are going to be back. So they get to run it back one more time. 
Exactly. You know, they've only lost um, one one starting pitcher to the draft. Nick Kraut is in the Rangers system now, but all of their other guys from, you know, the top draft prospects who we'll talk about to just their, their consistent veterans. This team is absolutely loaded. Baseball America has them picked to win the Big East in the preseason. And once we start going through, uh, start going through these guys, it's, it's not going to be hard to see why. Well, um, so behind the plate with Pat Winkle, fully ready to go from Tommy John surgery. Yes. Yeah, so Tommy John, obviously, even though it's less problematic for a position player than a pitcher, it's, it's no small, no small uh, thing to have to overcome. Pat really, I guess he was one of the main beneficiaries of uh, having last season short and is that he, he missed way less game time than he would have had to. Otherwise, according to Pat himself, he feels like he's got a new arm, uh, you know, all done with the rehab hundred percent ready to go. He has been racking up the preseason honors like crazy. He's on baseball America's uh, top 200 for draft prospects. He might have even been on the top 100. So I would not be shocked to see him go in the in the third or fourth round, which for a catcher, a college catcher, that's really reserved for the elite of the elite. Outstanding defense. And from what I remember from his, from his freshman season, one of the most mature freshmen I've seen at the plate in quite some time. So really an exciting star piece to have for this Huskies team. And uh, the thing also about the catching position is, you know, they really like who they have behind Winkle as well. So Kieran Deveni, a grad transfer from UMass Lowell, really known for his power and has been impressing a lot. He had a very loud uh, fall season. And so the thought is he's going to be getting in some time when, uh, when Pat Winkle's DHing. He might get some, some DH at-bats himself. Uh, one of the, one of the, one of the things that, uh, you know, we hear from, you know, our, our people in the program is that UConn coach Jim Penders loves to mix it up in terms of the, the catch and rotation. And so having two real high quality D one hitters at the position is something that's just going to bolster them even further. All right. But how about this star studded outfield that I've been hearing about, not just from you, but on baseball America publications as well, really for the last couple of weeks of how this is a real group of guys that's going to make an impact, not just here, but perhaps professionally as well. Sure. So it really starts in right field with Kyler Fedko, the younger brother of second baseman, Christian Fedko, who's a great, uh, a great college player in his own right. Kyler kind of took a little bit to find a home on the diamond, but he's really settled into right field, arguably the best uh, overall hitter in that lineup. Um, they've got fifth year senior Chris Winkle, Pat's older brother and center. So a lot of family connections on this UConn team. Uh, to me, that says a lot that older brothers love the Jim Penders experience so much that, you know, he's able to come in and, and recruit their siblings as well, which you know, that's not common at all throughout, throughout the college game. But Chris, a very athletic defender. Uh, he, he came into the program as a first baseman and to have that kind of versatility is really unheard of. You know, my, my, my sense is uh, he's going to join his brother in, in terms of, you know, playing at a pro complex uh, later this summer. Uh, and in left field, uh, Eric Stock transferred from Old Dominion. Uh, they kind of slotted him in in a bunch of different places last year, but really uh, his bat was on fire right before everything got shut down. Stock is a guy who can also throw some innings in relief, but that's as we're going to get to, there's such a deep bullpen. So he's probably going to get most of his time in the field. Uh, also uh, TC Simmons, a guy we're told to watch out for, you know, fourth outfield pin running uh, can really add a lot uh, to this team, despite not being projected to start moving into the infield. Uh, Zach Bushling, uh, one of the many uh, California Juco products that uh, that UConn loves to recruit over the years. He's looking like the guy at third base, but the t- uh, this team has options. Uh, there's Todd Peterson, a uh, local Connecticut kid from, from Newtown. Great athleticism for his size. He's someone the coaching staff could look at as well. Now, shortstop, this is a position... Uh, that's been very important, uh, you know, to the Huskies historically. Obviously, Nick Ahmed, the main name, but also Anthony Prado, who was drafted in the seventh round by the Twins a couple of years ago, and is probably going to be in the upper minors this year. It essentially looks like a like a like a two man uh, a two man thing they have going here. Andy Haig, 
Uh, he's been in the program for a while, a bit of a smaller, scrappy guy, but he uh, has really impressed the coaching staff in the off season. He got some regular uh, chances to start for the first time last season and, and, and looked solid. He's probably going to be the guy they go with at the beginning. But, uh, you know, if he falls at all, one of the top recruits on this team is Brian Padilla from the fabled uh, poly prep program in uh, in New York City, home of coincidentally former Husky shortstop Anthony Prado, whom I just mentioned. So Padilla will uh, definitely be the next man up if Haig struggles. But he's a guy that Penders is really going to have to, you know, break into the lineup. And of course, uh, with Christian Fedko at second, but he's also been known to step in at the DH spot. So, you know, there's going to be plenty of opportunity for these guys in the infield mix. Reggie Crawford, one of their best recruits in recent years, drafted by the Royals out of high school, but passed uh, passed them up to come from, from rural Pennsylvania. He slid right into the lineup at first base and showed incredible power. He honestly looks to me like he could be one of those first basemen that vaults up to the first few rounds by the time he's a junior. And he's also uh he's also a lefty with great stuff on the mound. So a true bona fide two-way player. The coaching staff has a lot of flexibility in terms of where they're going to deploy him on the mound, but he seems like one of those guys that you see at like a top 10 program, just you know, being able to to to, to pitch, hit, and field at, at that elite level uh to to get there at bats. And now on the pitching side, an interesting note here. There is no three-man weekend rotation this year because there are four-game conference series in the Big East. Why is that in this particular season? Yeah, so I think it has to do with really the series size. And of course, you know, there's going to be a lot of series where like even in the non-conference, they're going to have to get more games in than usual. Texas Tech is going to be really in the, uh, it's going to be one of the early tests that this team faces. As we mentioned earlier, the number three team in the country. Um, And this is also possible because, you know, as we're hearing, this team has such great depth in the rotation. So while we'll talk about, you know, Friday and Saturday and Sunday starters, it's going to amount to a lot more than that for the Huskies. Let's take a look at these guys, starting with the quote unquote Friday guy, Ben Casperi. Yeah, so Ben Kasparius uh, transferred from UNC, again, one of the top programs in the country, Connecticut native coming home. Uh, This is a bit of a recurring theme. You see uh, UConn doing a a great job over the past few years in the transfer market. He is, uh, from what we're hearing, at the level of the top UConn starters that have been there over the past decade. Carson Cross, Anthony Kay, currently in the Blue Jays, uh, Tim Kate. Uh, Nationals top prospect whom we've uh, we've uh, we've gushed over uh, on this show before. Casparius is another guy who's going to get his name called very early in June. Absolute lights out stuff. Joe Simeone, Saturday starter. It's looking like pretty consistent uh, stuff over the course of the uh, the shortened season last year. Uh, has really paid his dues. Started off in the bullpen as a freshman, but uh, transitioned well into a bit of a starting role. Uh, so there are, there are quite a few other names uh, to deal with, and one who has such a unique story is Jimmy Wang, who originally hails from China. And picked up uh, picked up the game while a high schooler in in Michigan coming over on exchange. Uh, he was not recruited. He, I believe, reached out to the coaching staff and sent sent in some tape. And they realized that they had an absolute stud on their hands. You have to be some kind of athlete to just pick up pitching like that. That's a that's a position where you need to polish your craft for years and years before you even reach college. And he just showed up and started throwing hard. Incredible. Yeah. And, you know, he unfortunately dealt with some injuries last year, was less effective than than usual. But all signs point to him taking a huge step forward this year, you know, being a little more cerebral with his pitches. Basically, as, as long as he's able to get his control, you know, where it needs to be, the sky's the limit for him. The term that we're told is weight room monster. So he's really worked on his body over the years. And so, you know, just with a, with increased pitch ability. There's just so much to like about him. And 
Uh, he could really be a great asset in that in that Sunday role. They've also got uh, Juco transfer Austin Peterson, an Indiana native who spent his freshman year at Ball State, who uh, has really shown some uh, some uh, so, some intriguing stuff for them. He has great size out there on the mound. Will Lucas and Pat Gallagher, uh, two uh, relievers in in 2020, who will will definitely be getting some opportunities to start during the week. Someone else to watch for redshirt freshman Sam Favieri was injured last spring, did not get to, uh, to pitch in the in the in the in the COVID shortened season. But uh, he he's really just another great depth option. Now, what should we expect early on from these guys? I would imagine that, especially with the long layover, they're not going to be going too, too deep into games, at least early on in February. So that means that that bullpen and that depth is going to be not tested, but relied upon rather. Yeah. And fortunately for the Huskies, the bullpen is once again, one of their great strengths. Caleb Worcester, I'm not biased when I say this, he's going to be one of the best closers in the country. Another guy who came in, not really recruited very heavily. Uh, I think he could have been uh, a, a guy who tried out and made the team as a walk-on, but an absolute shutdown lefty with just a tremendous amount of experience uh, thus far. He's gotten, uh, he's pitched in a lot of big games, postseason games, conference tournaments, and he is exactly the kind of guy to follow in the footsteps of uh, the former UConn closers who are currently in the pros, PJ Poulin with the Rockies, John Russell, the Giants, Jacob Wallace with my Boston Red Sox. Uh, UConn really has a pipeline for getting their ninth inning guys uh, noticed and drafted. Worcester is definitely the next one in that pattern. In addition to Worcester, beyond that, there are a couple of other interesting names in the bullpen. Kenny House has operated as a bit of a swingman, another California Juco guy. He looks like he's going to be one of Worcester's top setup men. Also, another name that uh, longtime fans of, of UConn baseball will recognizes Randy Polonia, who is an, who came into this program as a flame throwing freshman, a bit wild, but, you know, really touching close to, 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 to triple digits from the start, got some closing experience, unfortunately uh, had a, a uh, a very checkered injury history. And this past year was in a pretty serious car accident, but we're told he's fully recovered and he is all set to go for the start of the season. You know, he can be used in short relief. They might try him in a setup role, but the veteran experience he brings, I believe he's the pitcher who's been on this roster the longest. And so really that's, that's the kind of thing that is invaluable when you're looking to make a deep run in the, in the playoffs and hopefully reach Omaha, having, having guys who have been there before who have soaked up all those lessons. Uh, and the last guy I want to talk about is Bobby McBride a freshman from Brewster, New York. He's looking like he could be up to a, you know, high nineties to, to, to low hundreds guy by the time he's a junior. UConn has a, a history of using uh, elite freshmen in short relief and giving them opportunities to, to get outs in that way. Um, he could also move into the back end of the rotation if they need him, but you know, they've, they've discovered another stud and it's uh, you know, just a testament to the, to the great recruiting job that uh, Jim Penders and company do all across the Northeast. Now, Sam, you seem obviously excited, but I need you to take your un, unbiased cap off. What is UConn's floor this season? And what is their ceiling? This is with my unbiased cap off. I think floor is floor is, you know, being on the bubble, maybe getting an at-large bid. I think that just like based on talent alone, they're really going to be up there. I, I, I find it hard to imagine a team with this much talent on it, uh, missing out of at least a regional. In terms of ceiling, it all depends on the draw they get. But this reminds me of the George Springer, Matt Barnes teams being able to go toe-to-toe with, you know, the, 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 the South Carolinas of the world. I honestly think that if the if their cards uh, you know fall in the right way, there could be a visit to Omaha this summer. It seems only fair to you and to our listeners because when they hear this, they're going to be astounded by how incredible that analysis was that we 
periodically check in on this UConn team every so often. Just take a look how they're doing in conference play and non-conference play and just give brief updates throughout the year. Yeah. And, and this isn't just because I'm a current student or because I'm a huge fan. This is, this is real exciting, high quality baseball being played right here in the tri-state area. And uh, the way I see it, the more people who are aware of that and can appreciate it, the better. Now, looking beyond UConn, of course, in the Big East, there are several teams in the tri-state area. We thought that it would be a great idea to give the listeners some local flavor, starting with the team from Queens, the St. John's Red Storm. Well, Matt, I'm actually going to pull a bit of a fast one on you because just from my casual following of the college game, St. John's has had a really strong program over the years. Uh, they tend to send a lot of guys to the to the professional ranks. Uh, and so I assume that they would kind of be the, the next program up. But it turns out Baseball America is ranking Seton Hall ahead of them in their preseason Big East rankings. And no Seton kidding. Hall, yeah, they're not bad either. I mean, the alma mater of Mo Vaughn, probably their most, their most famous alum. Uh, I think Matt Morris, formerly of the Cardinals. Uh, was a former ace of the Pirates, but Seton Hall is looking like the team team two out of three in terms of the real Northeastern Big East teams. The real calling card from what we're reading and hearing with Seton Hall is experience. You know, there's no superstar necessarily, but they've got a lot of uh, upper class talent that's returned. Uh, I think the big name to watch is uh, Casey Dana, who plays third for them. The younger brother of Colin Dana, who pitched for the Pirates and is now a starter in the Padres system. So some really solid bloodlines. Another guy, a fifth-year senior in the outfield, Tyler Shedler McAvoy. Um, so that's really emblematic of where they're at. Just experienced guys who have spent you know, three, four, five years going up against uh, Big East pitching. They've kind of, they've lost a little bit in the, uh, in the starting pitching area. Um, Ryan McClinsky looks like he's going to go out on, on Friday nights, had some decent numbers in his first couple of starts before last season was shut down. And uh, one name that BA mentions in terms of true freshman to watch is Drew Conover, who is a 6'5 righty from Pittstown, New Jersey. And they think that he can slide right in there and make some noise right off the bat for the Pirates. Now for these Johnnies, head coach, I see Mike Hampton. Is that the Mike Hampton? Formerly of the great the Mike Hampton. Oh, it is, that's not, unfortunate. Not the Mike Hampton, but a great coincidental name, especially in the same borough as the New York Metropolitans. Ed Blankmeyer, though, really a, a legend of the college game. Uh, I believe he's skippering in the minors now. Ironically, I, I want to say it's with the Mets. Um, all right. But, so it, it's all in the borough. So he yeah, they're, gets they're, to stay. They're, they're, they're keeping it local, but not really that shocking now that I think about it, that there's a little bit of a downturn once this elite coach moves on to greener pastures. Obviously, the St. John's name still carries a lot of weight. They're recruiting uh, the tri-state in Pennsylvania very strongly uh, under Hampton as well. So that's not going to go away anytime soon, but he's not at Blankmeyer. And so that's going to be you know just something to keep an eye on uh, going forward. There's a little bit of a transfer uh revolving door when it comes to these Johnnies. They've they've brought in a couple of guys, but there have been some losses too. Um, Mike Antico, who is a uh, an outfielder, preseason biggest player of the year last year. He's now a Texas Longhorn. And I have a suspicion there might be a couple other guys who, who fit that description. So uh, the Johnnies have some holes to fill. So they've got some uh, interesting returning players. David Glancy uh, in the outfield got off to a uh, very torrid start in, in, in his limited college debut. So he'll probably have to pick up some of the slack from Antico going uh, going down south. In terms of their pitching staff, a lot of uh, unfortunately ugly numbers in terms of returning ERAs. I think that the, the the best guy coming back is Watertown, Connecticut's own Nick Mondax. So he went his own way. He went out of state for his college ball. Uh, he's had some health issues, but BA says that it's it's ace stuff when he's healthy. And from uh, from a left handed pitcher, you got to love hearing that. 
And now for the benefit of our New Jersey audience, the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, they are in the Big Ten, not the Big East. So we're doing them a favor. Projected to finish in ninth place this year. Yeah, Matt, the, the interesting thing here is Steve Owens took over the team last year. Steve, uh, a longtime college baseball coach, has moved his way up the ladder. I think I want to say he started at that SUNY Cortland. Uh, shout out to the Red Dragons, one of the uh, elite uh, Division three programs, then up to Lemoyne. And his, his D1 debut was with Bryant, the Bryant Bulldogs up in Rhode Island. And he did a really nice job developing them into uh, one of the best low majors in New England. Bryant got a lot of guys drafted and turned, uh, and turned recruits who may not have been elite coming out of high school necessarily to professional baseball players. So he knows what he's doing, but his work is really cut out for him at Rutgers. Uh, the hope is that the, um, the big 10 kind of expands their recruiting area and, you know, allows them a little bit more, a little bit more cachet in different areas, but that's going to take a little bit of time, not a lot going on in the lineup necessarily to write home about, but there's some interesting stuff, uh, in terms of their rotation. They have one of the most uh, aptly named uh, Friday starters in the game, Harry Rutkowski for Rutgers. That's serendipitous right there. It's quite serendipitous. You know, lefty with a 274 ERA coming back. Uh, they got a, they got a like that relying a bit on grad transfers from less experienced programs. Uh, Brent Teller, no relation to the Vegas guys. I don't think um, is coming from sacred heart. Ben Woreski from Columbia, the Ivy league. Um, and so a bit of a risk to be taking, to be incorporating guys from, you know, less prestigious programs. But I think that for, for Rutgers, they kind of, uh, they kind of, they need to be taking risks because it's a loaded big 10. You need to be, you know, you need to have guys who are experienced and who can handle pressure. And I think with a grad transfer, you're getting someone who's been around for, you know, three, four seasons. And so hopefully that pays off and that, you know, does, uh, does some good things in the clubhouse for them. Before we wrap up, Sam, your knowledge of the amateur level never ceases to impress me. What are some resources that our listeners or maybe your co-host can use to get more involved in the college game? What Twitter accounts do you follow? What articles do you read? So uh, longtime friends of the show will know that we are big believers and in, in, in subscribers to Baseball America. But uh, one other site I would uh, definitely suggest is D1Baseball.com. They are probably, for in terms of college-focused outlets, the, the best in the business uh, in terms of you know covering games, uh, analysis. Their, their previews are way meatier than anything we've put out for you in this episode. And their, their writing staff, uh, in particular... Uh, I want to I want to give a shout out to Kendall Rogers at Kendall Rogers on Twitter. Uh, it would be a great follow for people looking to learn more about the daily ins and outs of the game. Sam, this is a great week. I was glad to expand the horizons here. If you're going major league focus for the last few weeks, it's time to go down even before the farm. We're in the seedlings and the saplings right now. I love that metaphor. And I'm thinking about seedlings and planting things has me optimistic for spring and better weather. yeah man i couldn't agree more and hearing you talking about seeds and saplings and planting has me optimistic for spring for better weather for better times for society and most importantly baseball's return i cannot wait we're on the farm that was sam shapiro i'm matt kovitz have a great week everybody